I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Christopher Russell, a psychoanalyst in Chelsea, Manhattan, and host on the podcast, New Books in Psychoanalysis. You may have noticed that Rendering Unconscious podcast has expanded in recent weeks. Rendering Unconscious podcast, 23rd Mind TV, Radio Mega Golem, and the label Highbrow Lowlife are all on the same stream. When I started the podcast, I kind of hijacked my husband's label SoundCloud and used it as the podcast SoundCloud. Last week, when he decided to start a sort of radio show of his own, we decided to have them all be in the same place. So now, Radio Mega Golem has joined Rendering Unconscious Podcast and 23rd Mind TV in the highbrow lowlife stream. Enjoy! Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. Available from Trapart Books, 2019. Please visit our publisher's website, www.trapart.net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash v-a-n-e-s-s-a two three c-a-r-l your support is greatly appreciated links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode New York with COVID-19 and um, and not being able to to see I work over the phone um, I just I can't stand it <laughs> yeah I work are most of your clients face to face or on the couch all on the couch all on the couch so in a sense nothing has changed for them um, uh, and in fact I have several that you know announce that they're on the couch um, in their, in their apartments, you know, so they're still there. They're trying to maintain it. And I'm, you know, in a chair, I'm not in the office. Um, and they don't seem, they don't seem to mind it, but I don't, uh, I can't stand it. Can't stand working over the phone. Yeah. What do you feel like feels different? Um, there's, the there's always even even as an analysis there's something about going to a, a space that is set up just for that and i could go down to the office but you know i'm in a shared office and everybody's just saying you know isolate don't don't go to these these spaces as, you know as much as you can uh, although i did for two weeks work in the office um so there's something about saying this this space, this physical space we're using for this, you know, for the treatment. Um, but then also, um, I think that you just you, you pick up more. I mean, uh, listening um, 
observing. I think there's evenly hovering observation as much as there is evenly hovering, you know, listening. Um, yeah, people so, move their legs or their arms or do different gestures or yeah. all, all, it's all very telling, even when they're on I, the couch and not looking at you. Absolutely. Well, absolutely. Um, especially, you know, uh, certain cases that are very aware of their own bodies, at least to talk about. And when what they're saying um, does not match up with, with what their body is doing. Um, it just, it's, it's extremely, extremely helpful, um, to share a space. I'm thinking of, um, what's the book? Oh, the empty space, the, the theater book where he talks at uh, Peter Brook, I was going to lose the name and he talks about, you know, and here he's talking about the theater, but members of the same species in the same room together to, to tell stories. He's talking about live theater. So I think it's, uh. To me, it's 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 important and a preferred way of working. And yet, I'm certainly grateful that we can work over the phone, um, because uh, I come out of the the restaurant world. It's funny. A friend of mine just opened a restaurant in Stockholm. Um, I come out of the restaurant world, and um, it's gone right now. All my colleagues, all my friends. I mean, it's just it's gone. It's they've been shuttered, and there is no you know bailout yet. So I'm I'm very fortunate that this work, you know, allows us to, to continue on the phone. Yeah, it's a really good point because a lot of small businesses or independent businesses are going to end up really hurt and unfortunately closing. Yeah, it's, um, there's, like I said, I'll just stick with the restaurant because that's what I know, but there are, almost every restaurant has had to set up their own independent GoFundMe page um, and there's no... There's work, get something collectively done, but I know that there, uh, the celebrity chef Tom Colicchio went on CNN um, last week and said we need, this you know requires federal help. So, you know, we'll see. We'll see. How did you go from restaurants to analysis? <laughs> That's a very good question. Well, <laughs> to, in certain cases, they're, they're all about feeding. Um, Nourishment. Nourishment, <laughs> nourishment. Well, I got to tell you, read Melanie Klein. And that makes so much sense. So much sense. Um, I, yes, there, there, there's elements of nourishment, of course, um, and then intimacy. Uh, you know, uh, uh, a chef that I worked with in New York, really, really brilliant guy, and he said, you know, he he considers, you know, being a chef a creative, artistic pursuit, and he said, and an of of the arts. He says, I consider mine to be the most intimate because I make something that you put inside of you. It could nourish you or it could kill you. Um, and it becomes and, you. And it becomes you. Yeah, exactly. Um, and you have to do it at least every week, if not every day. <laughs> you know. Uh, so I really, um, it's funny, my wife, you know, was a, uh, an actor and, and had to wait tables and despised it. I loved it. I absolutely loved um, being table side. I liked nourishing. I liked feeding people. But over time, um, in a lot of relationships that I formed with uh, guests and friends, it's like, why do we have to have this 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 menu between us? Why do we have to have? Why can't it just be the two of us? And um, so I um, 
you know, and, and through a different path, I found psychoanalytic writing. I found, of course, analyst. And I thought, I just want, I just want the meeting with another human being to be about that. No pretense of food or, or anything else. And, um, and I, uh, and that's, you know, and then I went to a group conference in 2000, 2000, it doesn't matter. I went to a, a, a group conference, um, a, a group analyst in New York held a summer conference at his home in Bar Harbor. And I went, um, and it was primarily, you know, analysts. It was a few of us who were, um, patients, but not analysts, but it was, you know, all grist for the mill. Everybody could come. And I had been considering training and whatever. And what was really fascinating is in that group, it was a big group, like 30 people, to an analyst, to an analyst, they all said, come on in, the water's fine. Not that it's easy, of course. It's not easy work. Not that they didn't have struggles. It's the most human profession. But as, as a profession, um, it was come on in, the water's fine. And in my life, that was the first time that had ever happened talking to any other profession, you know, friends of mine who were, you know, super successful attorneys are like, um, Oh God, if you can do anything else, don't be an attorney. You could be a restaurateur if you can do anything else. So people that had professions that they loved generally warned people against it. And this was the first time this group of people said, this is, this is great. And I knew it. I mean, you sort of know it before you know it. Um, and I, and I began training. Yeah, I love it. I waited tables and tended bar for a long time too, like all before college, all through college, all through grad school. Um, and I've often joked that it's it's really similar, like especially tending bar. You're kind of a therapist, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and uh, I used to joke that I should have just stayed tending bar because I made more money. <laughs> but I worked on South Beach, so. <laughs> uh. Well, I mean, I also know I was very fortunate to be doing it. I'm originally from, from D.C., but most of my life has been spent in New York. And, and to, to wait tables bartended in New York, is it's it's a whole other level of, of income. And also respect and professionalism, and it really allowed me a lot. But it's there's uh, in the very beginning of Thelma and Louise, when they're, you know, after they've killed, I think his name is Harlan or whatever, and the cop says, how'd you know he was a bad dude? And she goes, I'm a waitress. If I can't spot, you know, if I can't read people, then I have no business being a waitress. And I'm like, yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, it's really, it's really, I think there's a lot of parallels um, feeding. And in fact, at one point when I was, you know, in training, um, one of the professors asked, which, which I thought was very typical of, of any university, of any stripe, sort of a self-answering question, like, oh, is your is your analytic training helping you in your restaurant work? And, and of course, that's a, yes, analytic training just helps in all lives. And I, of course, had to be oppositional and said, listen, being a waiter has helped me <laughs> be an analyst, you know, in a sense, even more. Yeah, I loved it too. Yeah, really, really amazing. So that's, uh, and that's really what I'm, I'm watching. Um, and uh, and and the seeing, you know, as was we all are here. Well, and that's uh, the thing. That's the good thing about being an analyst as a profession as well, is because we can still do our job now. And also, I always like that you can do it until you're like very, very old. You know, 
but like a lot of people stay doing it way past like retirement age and you know all the way till the end and it's really nice because you don't or your level of ability you know you don't have to walk around um so there's a lot of uh great reasons just like logistically in that way oh at my control analyst um was said the same thing even at one point i was saying something about my own ira or 401k i forget what it was and she says what are you talking about this is our retirement fund <laughs> you know uh and uh yeah uh, it's you can't you can't outgrow it you can't what kind of training it. did you do so i um uh, I had discovered uh, my analyst, as I think a lot of people who go in through their own, was from a, a school called um, the Center for Modern Psychoanalytic Studies here in New York. And uh, when I went um, to to start training, and I went into that, they were uh, down on uh, 10th Street in the village in New York. I love that place. Yeah, I. Uh, it's a great street. Um, I went and I'm reading the brochure. Here's what you need to do to train. And of course, at this point, I'm a waiter. I'm like, oh, good. I can just schedule my shifts and do it. And I got to the the last bit when it says um, you uh, uh, requirement for finally being certified. This is pre-licensure was um, a pre-existing degree, uh, in a master's degree in a related field, social work, nursing. And I went, I don't have a master's degree. And they said, oh, well, no, you get that in Boston. And this is when I knew I wanted to do it. I was living in New York, and I agreed to commute to Boston for two years because that there was a the sister school, the Boston Graduate School of Psychoanalysis, offered a master's degree in psychoanalysis, um, and that's all I was interested in. I didn't want to get a degree in social work to be able to do it. I just I was, you know, I was in for for one thing. So I did the masters in Boston. Uh, and then, you know, the certificate and licensure work in New York. How great it is that that program is set up. It's really, and now they have it in New York. You can, it's Boston Graduate School, but New York campus. So it's still through the state of Massachusetts. Um, they have it in New York and, and New Jersey. So, yeah, I was very, 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 very fortunate to, to go into the, the program that way. And then... What's interesting is my mind goes to the group that you and I met through, the Das Unbehagen, because it wasn't until I graduated that I found it. Um, and, you know, my experience in the, the modern school is you are with your tribe. You read your tribe. You read modern analysts. You read who they say to read, Winnicott, what have you, um, which is superb. And then I get out and I join this online Forum, and there's all kinds of conversations about theories I had never considered, authors I'd never read, so I considered it my post-graduation education. That's great, and that's, that's one of the main reasons we set it up, was because we wanted all, there's so many different schools in New York, and nobody was talking to each other, it's like everyone was in their little camp, and we were like, all of you are so great. Wouldn't it be great if, like, all of you were having a conversation? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I think what's interesting, because the it sort of faded, um, I had forgotten about this until just now, that 
it was obviously a very lively group and different ideas and, and sometimes uh, contentious, um, but it never got, in a sense, destructive or at one point uh, mean, not necessarily cruel, until the, the, the trans threads and people just, it was really, I found it very, very bizarre that people got very attacking during that time. It's very. I thought it was very sad. Yeah, that's the only time we've had to take someone off. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. we were like before, we were just trying to be open to everyone's ideas and you know let people kind of hash it out with their like arguments or debates or whatever, and just you know let it let it live its own life. And we didn't want to start like having like certain people be able to make decisions about what people could say or who could say what, but. Um, that was just like you know that points like a civil rights issue, and you can't you can't be talking negatively about trans people in that derogatory, bigoted way. So yeah. <laughs> to just nope. like take two two people off after that. But the way I was able to understand it for myself is that the, it was in a sense a group, and uh, uh, even an analytic group. If you have someone who's intent on destroying the group, the analyst can throw them out. You can't. You can. You can ask someone to leave a group if they're intent on, on destroying the group or creating a subgroup that's going to yeah, destroy. Yeah, exactly. And we had had like I had a few like personal negative attacks at me for trying to like stop the negativity. Oh my God. <laughs> so it's just like somebody has to moderate this, you know. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm sorry for that. I, I I was fortunate. No one, no one attacked me. So. Um, but I, you know, I, I enjoyed it and, and obviously I've met you, um, and so many people and, and gone to, to talks and, and really it's just been, I think it's a superb community, although somewhat, somewhat dormant now. Um, but, uh, really well, everything's really, dormant now. <laughs> <laughs> well, but yeah. in recent years. Yeah. yeah <laughs> we're looking uh, for, we're supposed to have this international conference in July in Copenhagen because I wanted um, the, the psychoanalytic scene in Stockholm is not too huge and the people I've met are mostly um, not into people working outside the APA I'll say so um, so the only people I've met that are like more Lacanian or okay with people working outside of the IPA are in Gothenburg which is like three hours away from Stockholm um, but I wanted like them and like some people in Denmark that I've met and like other people from Europe to come over and kind of merge with the New Yorkers and have everyone get together and see what happens. But I don't know that doesn't seem like that's going to happen now, but we'll see. When was it scheduled for? It's in the end of July. Hmm. We'll see. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> yeah, we, we just have to take I mean, it day by day at this point, I think. Yeah, I think. Yeah, that that's right. That's right. And um, I think what's so interesting is that you, we're, we're a community of people that enjoy, in a sense, intimate uh, involvement in the lives of others, no matter what our theoretical orientation. And the request to, to distance and be separate um, is very strange, very strange. Yeah, one of my friends that's in New York said that it's really hard to like when she had to like take her kids out just because they need to be outside for a minute and like walk around the block, like like being so afraid of other people and like wanting to stay away from everyone. It's like a really horrible feeling. Yeah, 
Yeah, our building. I live in a we live in a a, a large apartment complex um, in Chelsea. It's huge, and they they have signs that said if if the elevator comes and there's someone on it that you don't know that's not part of your circle, don't get on. Just wait for the next one. You know. Um, so a brave brave new world, strange new world. I'm not sure what sort of world it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, hopefully it. It it's uh, hopefully it cracks things open for for something new. Yeah, exactly. Like like has been noted, all of these kind of systemic issues have been issues for a very very long time, and mm-hmm. the election kind of brought most of it to light. And now this is like bringing all of it clearly to light. <laughs> so something needs to change. Yeah, and it's also with everybody. Um, you know, with all all of our cases, all of my cases now have a common denominator. Watching people's reactions to it, um, and so a lot of them are are surprised. You know, if you said, "Oh, there's going to be a global pandemic, and this is what's going to happen," you know, what would you feel? And people would predict, I think, all kinds of things. And it's uh, I have a number of people who are surprise themselves in the calm that they feel uh the break in their life that's been thrust upon them that they're like oh this is i can i can do something with this um it's been uh, surprising really surprising yeah i've heard a lot of people saying that they're much calmer than they expected themselves to be yeah yeah yeah, yeah. maybe even feeling a little bit detached or dissociated Yeah, maybe. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm sort of my mind is, is of course going to to different cases and and uh, um, what what it's happened to them. But what was interesting is I was the word that was coming to my mind, which has been uh, really dominant now for a while, is my mind was was drifting to my cases, and I read um, the. Uh, Laplanche, uh, the unconscious and translation books that uh, Jonathan House and so others good. did. They're so, I mean, they're just really so, so rich. And in the um, Freud and the Sexual, and he talks about, uh, I'd never heard this before, that Lacan um, interpreting drive as drift. And that word drift has it shows up everywhere now and I have been consciously and unconsciously meditating on it because it opens up so much um, in a way that drive um, maybe did the first time I heard the term drive and started thinking about them but uh, um, the way that drift is um, frequently uh, not Welcome, right? Couples drift apart. Um, you hear, you know, in, in crime novels, someone's murdered by a drifter. You don't hear, how'd you meet? Oh, he was a drifter and we got married. You just, the, the term drift, um, to me, the, 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 the motion that it is so nonspecific about. Um, and I was uh, recently talking to an, an, an author and and the idea of just drift and 
and that word and the idea of just drifting and a number of authors, the LaPlanche book, um, Barnaby Barrett, uh, comes to mind some others, um, that they're at least in the past five years, a lot of people are, are writing about the return to the fundamental rule. Just, just talk, just drift. Um, and so it's really, I found it very helpful, a very helpful term. Um, it also catches yeah. that sense of something like slipping through your fingers to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like it's drifting and you can't quite, it feels like it's drifting away and you can't quite mm-hmm. grasp it. Right, right. And, and that, that takes me right back to, to, to Barrett who said, I thought really lovely, he says, you know, we, we fight, we, we don't want to make sense. We don't want to grasp. That's, let it go. Don't grasp. And, and how evocative of a word it is and also how, in a sense, pragmatic to say to an analysis and, hey, free associate. That just, you know. That's gonna. It's like telling someone to relax. <laughs> it's just not gonna happen. But to invite someone to just drift, um, there is the the pleasurable to it being on an ocean drifting. Um, it seems to be a helpful uh, a helpful invitation in in the work um, and a way of conceptualizing the work. So really, that's. Uh, I love that book, Freud and the Sexual. I use it so much and read it so much. It's so good. It is so good. So good. And and it, it's one of those books where you'll read a sentence and the statement in the sentence is so um, powerful that you just, or I will just stop and go, well, I'm going to meditate on that for three days. <laughs> it just, you know, it's, it's so, it's so incredible and so clear and approachable. Um, yeah, the translation they've done is so good because all the translations are so clear. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and again, and I read very little, uh, LaPlange when I trained, um, some, but not, you know, it wasn't a, he wasn't a dominant author and um to be to be exposed especially through that book i mean it's really really remarkable and it's also i think for me one of those books and his writing that really as a clinician it's almost his his writing and his ideas of, of ways to to think about the work and what we're doing is like a sharpening stone and you're just rubbing yourself against it. It just is just is a great way to to um, help keep you, at least me, um, current, present, um, in 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 the room and and working. It's really, I think, it's just remarkable. Who are some modern analysts uh, to read? Well, um, the the ones who published the most uh, were Dr. Phyllis Meadow. And Heinz Spotnitz. So Dr. Spotnitz is the one who, in a sense, coins the term modern psychoanalysis uh, in the 50s. He was at New York Psychoanalytic, um, managed to get himself thrown out. So he starts his own thing, um, his own school. Um, he, his probably signature book is called Modern Psychoanalysis of the Schizophrenic Patient. That's 1969. It's been republished since. 
And the idea that um, schizophrenia was pathologically reversible, the, the real primitive pre-edible uh, states were uh, suitable for analysis. Um, so he, he starts it, but I would say Phyllis Meadow, who founded the, the center both in New York and in Boston, her writing is um, clearer and and he's very he's a very good writer, but he writes almost like um, it's like a cookbook. Oh, you do a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Um, the concepts are very good. He's he obviously started an entire school of thought. Um, but I say Dr. Phyllis Meadow um, would be the one. Her last book was called The New Psychoanalysis, two thousand four, and it's it has that same the same effect for me as the Laplanche book because it's her her distillation of years of thought into a book that is is uh, dense. Um, Dense in the fact that the sentences are so well crafted that they contain a lot. I mean, they've just been, she's been editing, you know, over the years. It's a very, very good book. Um, and, uh, yeah, I would say Meadow and Spotness are the big ones. And then um, others uh, that are that only published in our journal, you know, we're sort of famous for just staying within ourselves. We publish in our journal, um, but... Very few are published, you know, with Routledge or any other places that you would would find it. Um, and I think that that's been our, uh, you know, to our detriment um, because we have ideas that just weren't shared to be agreed with or disagreed with. They just weren't out there to have any, uh, any, you know, commentary or, or challenge. Um, well, just that aspect that you mentioned is so important. I think you, you mentioned Molly Merson's podcast, and oh, I think God, we talked that about that, is that um, this idea that you know people aren't analyzable, that really drives me insane. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, and it's so relevant today, I think, because I think more and more people are realizing that all these kinds of pathologizing structures are really you know all part of the same grand system that needs to that is being uprooted and needs to really change. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, it's, it's funny. I was trying to remember and I, I found it here. Dr. Meadow has one of my, she says a lot of, one of my favorite quotes is she says, we know there is an unconscious. Don't worry about being a Freudian. Don't worry about using the term psychoanalysis. Worry if you ever use the term unconscious, nobody wants one. And, Laplanche says the same thing in Freud and the Sexual, which is that how humiliating to discover something so other inside yourself. Um, and I think that, yeah, the Molly, that interview was just superb. And I, I wrote to her as well because it was just so it was just so rich and the unanalyzable. And that's another thing that I've noticed over the past, you know, I say five or ten years. I have no sense of time. I just read. I take an idea and then I enjoy it. That... Um, interpretation now if not under attack it's being said hey wait a minute there's so much else going on I just um, interviewed uh, Bruce Reese uh, he's got a, a new book out where um, it's it's all about I think he says the monsters madness and other things that happen inside a session that aren't 
interpretation. He doesn't throw interpretation out, but that's not what that book is about. Um, but this idea of who qualifies to be analyzed and also who qualifies, you know, to be an analyst. Um, I know that there were, um, and maybe still are, but certainly when I first started training the idea that the, you know, the, the non-medicalized should not be analysts. And I know that fight's been going on forever. Um, since 1926. I, since 1926, <laughs> exactly. And I always wonder why a question of lay analysis didn't put that to rest. I always wonder, if that hadn't been published, I could get the, the argument. I'm always wondering why that didn't just put it to rest. But it didn't. It didn't. People just love to exclude people so that they can be on top. Yeah. Oh, my God. I, one of the training analysts at CMPS, somebody was talking about exclusive, like a club or, you know, exclusive, whatever it was. And uh, he said exclusivity is the, the, the provenance of the death drive. And I wrote it down. I went, oh, yeah, that's true. That's true. That's true. And then I had that moment where I'm like, well, wait a minute. Why is that true? And so I wrote him. I said, explain what you meant by that. And he goes, I just did. He goes, I just think it's true because I haven't given it any thought. You know, he just said it. It felt like it was true. And we, we, we went with it. Um, yeah, but it's just complete, continually like blocking things into smaller and smaller and smaller like fragments. It's like mm -hmm. fragmenting things and isolating from other things and cutting things off. That is all, all death drive. You know, it's like inertia instead mm -hmm. of like allowing things to flow and like opening things up, opening up possibilities, opening up with questions. You know, it's like locking everything down. Ah, oh, that, uh, yeah. And that I would think, uh, you know, modern psychoanalysis has, is, its phrase, which is, it's all grist for the mill. It's all grist for the mill. And um, and it's it's a shame that Meadow has passed because she said something near the end of her life that I never got to explore. And she said, you know, the final resistance is confidentiality. And I'm like, oh, that's very fascinating. I don't know what she meant by that. <laughs> and we can explore it. Um, but the opening up and the curiosity, um, one of the... Um, one of my favorite thinkers who I got to hear speak here in New York in 2004 was Andre Green. Um, that, his conference, if I could say that's if, you know, if I just said you get to pick 24 hours that trained you, it would be that conference. And in the Q&A, somebody asked him, you know, what are you up to? What are your goals? What are your aims for treatment? And he says, I have no aim whatsoever. I'm simply trying to open up a closed structure. <laughs> Exactly. Oh my God! I really, and it was interesting because I, I, he was assigned um, to read, and I found him challenging to read before I met him. Once I met him and heard him speak, I went, okay, got it, got it, got it. And then, and he's another one that I just keep going, going back to and spending time with. Yeah, that's a great person to read now. I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I have a couple of his books. I haven't read them in, I think I read them in about eight years ago. I'll yeah. have to revisit. Yeah. Well, he's very, um, obviously, you know, deep thinker, well-researched approaches. Um, but you find, or I find, incredible humanity um, 
you know, he talks about, uh, you know, what the analyst should be, you know, open, receptive and all this other stuff. And he said, well, that's wonderfully, wonderfully idealistic. But who can who can accomplish this? You know, he's very um, he has it's not as I say front and center as Winnicott, but there's a very gentle, <laughs> good enough analyst, you know, in in the writing. Um, as well as, of course, very clear thought. Um, yeah, I think he's just just superb. Yes, yeah, so you you interview for new books on psycho in the psychoanalysis. I do. Why don't you I talk do. about that? It's the best. Well, that, that's what that's... I listen to when I'm at the gym or when I used to go to the gym. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I I do. I got uh, Tracy Morgan, who's the editor for the Psychoanalytic Channel. She and I were studied together at CMPS, and she invited me to to join and. And I was was happy to do it. And the first book that I did is still um, one of the most amazing books I ever read. Uh, an analyst in New York, a woman, she's mid eighties, um, and you know, friend of friend of ours, friend of the family. And she says, "Oh, I've I've published my uh, my memoir, and I want you to read it." And I said, "Okay." Um, and I, I'll admit, it was self published. And I went, oh, God, self-published. And I had all prejudice against that. You know, if this isn't, you know, Farrar, Strauss, Giroux, I don't want to read it. Um, I got very much on my exclusive high horse. But she's a friend. So I picked up the book. It's called I Should Have Been Music. Um, and she was institutionalized in New York. She tried to kill herself at Vassar in 1957. And it's her story of going through the system as a patient um, I read it in two days. It's one of the best things I've ever read. And what's amazing is she's writing as a patient. She has the primary process notes, the actual doctor's notes she got from when she was at the hospital. And wow. what's amazing, you read her. She's also a very good writer. She teaches writing, I think, at the new school. Um, superb writer. You have her journal entries and you have what she was experiencing as a patient and you read it and it's incredibly visceral. It's very hard to read her description of going for insulin coma therapy is so harrowing that I had to stop. I said, I can't go down the hall with you. I can't, you, you're with her. It's, it's brutal, really brutal. Uh, but you read that and then you read the doctor's notes and they're so far off. And I went, Oh my God, I have written process notes like this. I've written them. They have nothing to do with the, the, the case at all. And she has these she's beautiful writing. She said they were trying to flatten me into their book of cures. <laughs> I mean, it's just beautiful stuff. Um, so that was, that was my, my first interview for new books, and I was really, really pleased to do it. Um, and I consider her book to be essential because it, it made me a better clinician. I would read it and it would open me up in the way a great yoga class or anything will just open you up. And I found myself, you know, higher levels of compassion, higher levels of empathy, higher attunement to listening with, with my cases after I read it. And I read it, you know, four times. Um, and then uh, Bruce Reese is, is my next interview. And then I'm going to be interviewing a modern analyst on Wednesday. Nice. So, um, yeah, it's uh, I enjoy doing it. It's very interesting to me because 
the podcast. It's called New Books in Psychoanalysis. You've been on, um, and it's it's about a new book and an author. And I've seen interviews where the book and the author, in a sense, get left as the interviewer and the author will go off into you know meta theoretical discussions, which are kind of interesting, but the book gets lost. Um, and you'll have each of their, you know, people associating to what they read. But um, the ones that I really like keep the book, you know, front front and center because the listening audience hasn't read the book. And so I think for me, it's very important to keep the book, you know, front and center. Yeah, I mean, my experience, Tracy's great, and she read that book so thoroughly, she remembered things that I didn't remember, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah. I was like, oh, yeah, that is in there. <laughs> oh, yeah, I did write that. <laughs> well, it's kind of like if you've ever been to the theater when they have the talk back afterwards and someone raises their hand and asks the actor about a choice and they've got all this history because they know about the material. And the actor is like, I have no idea what you're asking me, you know, <laughs> the, the reader being, in a sense, more more thorough. So, uh, <laughs> Yeah. Well, Tracy's, I mean, yeah, she's sort of the gold standard for, for interviews um, for all of us, yeah. Fun. It is fun. Well, you have yeah. to send me links to um, this woman's book and then the modern analysts so that I can link it to the show. Oh, sure. That Yeah, we would love that. We would love that. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, uh, somebody, Romy Redding and uh, Billy Pivnik at... at uh, NYU postdoc are starting. We're supposed to launch their podcast um, during the you know Div thirty nine meeting, which obviously got canceled. So, yeah, <sighs> I'm supposed to be in New York right now because the meeting oh. was this weekend, this past weekend, or oh was supposed God. to be. Yeah, I was supposed to fly in on Friday the thirteenth, uh, <laughs> and I think we the meeting got canceled. The conference got canceled on Monday. And then we still had, because my husband makes films and books and things, and he had, like, a film festival this weekend in New York that he was, like, they were showing, like, five of his films over the weekend. And we had a, a book launch event with our friend. Um, that's the book that uh, our friend and my husband did together. Um, that was supposed to be Thursday. And so after the conference got canceled, we thought, oh, we'll still go because of all these other events we have going on. And then the next day we were like, I don't know. Our friend, our friend that my husband had the book with, was like seventy, and we're like, you know, she's really kind of ill already, and was already like just in chemo, and we're like, probably we should cancel that. And then I was like, I don't want to see my parents either, because you know they're el older too, and we were just like, forget it, we should just cancel everything. So we canceled everything. I think Wednesday, and then the, like later that day, they announced that we couldn't fly there anyway. Mm. At, they, they said that Europeans would ba be banned to flying in starting Friday the 13th, which is when we were supposed to leave. <laughs> so I'm just glad that we hadn't planned our trip like, you know, a few days earlier and then we're, we're there and like couldn't get home, you know, it'd be like even worse. So yeah, oh better be God. stuck, better be stuck at home. <laughs> I, yeah, I think so. Uh, yeah. I think so. I have a, a, a friend who's, um, stuck in Berlin, I think, and uh, yeah, very and anxiety producing. you can producing. only be in, like, with one other person. They've oh, locked it right. down so that's that it's right. only two people at a time now. Oh, God. 
Yeah. It's, it's rough. Uh, yeah. And I think, for, at least for me, this is the first time in my lifetime I've confronted everything global. Somebody, somebody on TV said this is our World War II moment. And I think that's somewhat accurate, that the whole world is now confronting something. Yeah, and, and also we've never been connected so much like this before, like all at one time through the internet. So it's like everybody's getting the same information immediately at the same time, all the time, all over the world. Mm -hmm. It's definitely unusual in human history. <laughs> right. Yeah, connected while we're being asked to disconnect. Right. But it's been nice in, in the way that a few people, um, like different groups that I know, have had kind of like little meetings about like, like yesterday a few analysts like called and they, they were like, can we all just talk and like kind of process what's going on with our practice and stuff like that. And then another kind of community that I'm a part of um, did the same sort of thing over the weekend. Everybody just kind of, you know, checked in with each other. So that's really nice to see like the various communities kind of checking in and seeing how everyone's doing and processing and talking about meeting again every couple of weeks or something. Oh yeah. And, and the, um, the videos coming out of Italy with, you know, people singing at the balcony and, uh, I think it was Spain where they applaud the, uh, the, uh, nurses and hospital workers at the end of every shift. Um, that that sort of stuff is really really beautiful, mm. um, but I saw some tenor, um, I forget his name. I love opera, but he you know he sang Nessendorma to this to Florence and, and it was at, at sunset. Mm. I was just it was just really magical. The freedom of your podcast to just in a sense just talk and drift is really, um, I don't know, it's just special. Yeah, I like it. I think I started it, I actually started it because um, when I was moving, you know, I was so used to be, being so busy, you know, working in an office in New York, seeing like 10, 12 people a day, every day, you know, and the commute and everything else. Um, I was used to like really long, busy days. And then all of a sudden, I just had like a few phone session analysis and like, you know, instead of seeing 10, 10 hours a day, I was seeing like 10 hours a week. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> so I was just like needing something to do. And I had done this book, Rendering Unconscious, which was like a right. bunch of people from Umbahagen, like um, contributing writing. And uh, I had edited that. And then I was like, now what do I do? You know? And so actually before that, we had done the violence book. So I did that. Then, then I did rendering. And I was like, now what do I do? I was like, maybe I can start interviewing people that are in rendering. <laughs> yeah. And so I just like started a podcast just to kind of, keep myself occupied basically but it's been really fun and I've always I've always said about um this profession it's such a privilege to be able to like have people talk to you and like tell you their like innermost thoughts and like how they view the world and you know it's really a special experience and I, I really appreciate that about it so I feel like I've kind of filled that in a little bit that hole uh with like talking to different people in the podcast too so I can like kind of hear what different people's views are about psychoanalysis and what they're doing with it and how they got into it and what their story's like. It's like a similar sort of thing, but in a different way. 
Right, and I also think that your podcast is allows if someone stumbles on it that is thinking about uh, psychoanalysis, thinking about that as a as as a treatment that has either never had treatment or has, just it's um, it's very welcoming, and because it's uh, a wide range of perspectives, it's like oh, I could I could find a home there. You know, people picking where they want to get their therapy from that have nowhere to begin. You know, listening to this, it just is like, okay, okay, I could find a home there, no matter, no matter where you're coming from, and that's, I think, the gift. Yeah, that's what I really want. I want it to be accessible and like used in multiple ways, which it is. Um, and I love hearing how people got into the field because everyone's kind of journey is so different, and I think that's really helpful too. Like when I was a graduate student, I mean, it was so like occluded, you know. It's like, how, do, who, where are the analysts? Like. How, how do they, where do they live? They're all in New York, you know. I was in Florida, you know. So it's like, they're all in New and York. And were you a grad student in psychology, or what was your grad work? I have a PsyD, so yeah, doctorate in ah. psychology. And I had been reading, like, Freud and Jung. I didn't hear about Lacan until I got to New York. So I was already, like, 29 or 30 when I heard about Lacan. Um, but uh, when I went to graduate school, I just assumed that, like, I thought it was going to be more eclectic. Like, here's Skinner, and here's Pavlov, and here's Freud, and here's Jung, and, you know, here's Melanie Klein. Like, I thought everybody would be talked about, because the way I always saw it was, like, all these people were coming from different perspectives, and, like, they all found things that are useful about the human experience, and I never think, like, one way is the way. That's just, like, not how I think. So I just thought, like, everyone's just kind of looking at different aspects of what it's like to be a human. And some of these mm -hmm. aspects can be useful for different people or d the same person in different times in their lives. You know, that's how I think. So I kind of just, just naively assumed <laughs> that graduate school would be more psychoanalytic than it was. And uh, then when I got there, it was like, there was like nothing. Um, there was two analysts that had retired in Florida <laughs> from New York. <laughs> and they, they taught, like, electives there. Like, I guess just have something to do. So they were my supervisors. So uh, I'm very thankful for them that they, that they were there. Yeah, because that's great. One, one was, like, you know, in his late 80s, you know. <laughs> so I'm glad he was still uh, lively and uh, wanted to talk to the students I, I listen. I think this discipline keeps us alive sometimes. Um, yeah, because it's. Yeah, I think it keeps people uh, alive, and uh, yeah, just you just keep going. Yeah, no, it's, it can be very generative, and I think that's why I was <laughs> so surprised at how like closed off the institutional structures can be. They're not all like that, of course but how some of them can be like so exclusionary and closed off because it's just so antithetical to what psychoanalysis is in my experience. In my experience, it's just like opened up all sorts of things and helped me, you know, process things from my childhood that I never would have thought of or remembered otherwise. And all of it's like freed up my energy. You don't realize, I don't think most people realize how much of your energy is being used to kind of keep all of these forces at bay and old traumas right. and misunderstandings and just like confusion about what the world is and your body and everything. And uh, it's all still there and it's all like being repressed. And the more you work through it, the more energy you have to create new things in your life and do things in a better way for yourself.
instead of just oh, enacting the same patterns over and over again. Yeah, well, whenever it's always that great moment for you, for yourself, but also for for cases when they when they say something new or give themselves permission and go, oh, I can say, it. oh, I can say that. Well, then let me tell you this, and it's just wonderful. Yeah, exactly. I think people. I think I didn't realize how much you're not given permission to do and say so much <laughs> in life. You know, there's like so mm -hmm. many unspoken rules about how to be and what to say and what's appropriate and all these things that people like censor themselves so much. Um, oh, and the more you stop I... like undoing that, the more you start undoing that, the more you just stop caring really about all of those rules. <laughs> Whenever I have we've had it happen a couple of times where a, uh, a, a friend who's, you know, in a, will come and say, you know, well, my th I'm going to quit my therapist and, They'll, they'll tell me why, and I'll say, well, why don't you share that idea, you know, which is usually a critique of the therapist. Why don't you say, talk about that? I'm like, well, I could never, I could never talk about that. The idea that they, in their mind, have decided there's still something off limits. So when you realize there's nothing off limits, it's like, oh, this is an enormous amount of fun. Yeah, there's real freedom in that. And that's, that's very true, like being able to say to the person you're talking to what you really think. <laughs> including yeah. about them <laughs> right that's a, that's always a real shift in the treatment it's like just say it what do you think say about it. me what don't you like well uh, somebody <laughs> once said that analysis begins when the analyst becomes the problem right <laughs> <laughs> you know which is pithy and funny but also a little bit true, true. You know? yeah. <laughs> yeah good well, this has been great. It was really fun. Yeah. Well, you said it would be fun. I believed you. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Christopher Russell, a psychoanalyst in Chelsea, Manhattan, and host on the podcast New Books in Psychoanalysis. Links to the center for modern psychoanalytic studies in New York, as well as to the work of Phyllis Meadow, Hyman Spotnitz, and Babette Baker, can all be found in the text accompanying this episode. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry, published by Trapart Books, 2019, and also available as an ebook through iBooks and Kindle. For more information, please visit our publisher's website, trapart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash v-a-n-e-s-s-a two three c-a-r-l. Your support is greatly appreciated. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode.
And now, Death Disco Scan, a song from the upcoming album by Douglas Lucas and I called Sound 23. Which was 